1803, Richard Trethwick built a steam-powered wheeled vehicle and drove passengers along existing roads from Holborn to London's Paddington neighborhood and back. However, it proved to be more expensive to operate than a horse-drawn carriage, so the idea of putting it into regular practice was dropped. However, other inventors continued to work on the idea of a horseless carriage or the modern-day automobile. Trethwick was not the first to use steam to power a vehicle. Many scholars give that credit to Nicolas Joseph Cuneau, a French captain who built a steam-powered cart to pull cannon in 1770. While it worked, it did not work well, and after building a few prototypes, the project was dropped. Steam-powered vehicles reached their pinnacle with the introduction of the Stanley Steamer in 1902. It set power, speed, and reliability records and was the fastest-selling car in the United States until Henry Ford sold his first Model T. Ford's $500 price tag put the Stanley Motor Carriage Company on the back burner, and it closed its doors in 1924 after selling some 11,000 vehicles. In 1834, a Vermont blacksmith developed a vehicle powered by an electric motor. However, batteries were in their infancy, and it could only go a short distance before the batteries needed to be replaced. That said, his engine was later used as a model for early streetcars. The first electric car to be mass-produced was developed in the 1890s by William Morrison. It ran at the blazingly fast speed of 6 miles per hour uphill and 12 miles per hour downhill, with a range of about 100 miles between recharges. Morrison's success, as are all other electric vehicles, including today's, was based on the work of Gaston Planté, a French physicist who developed the rechargeable battery in 1865. Steam powered the 19th century. It gave us factory automation, steamboats, railroad locomotives, and even buses and cars. But when it came to 20th century industries, particularly in the world of transportation, it was the internal combustion engine that powered the industrialized world. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the ground and air transportation industries. The problem with both steam, which used kerosene engines to power their boilers, and electric vehicles was the short travel times. Electric cars could only run about 80 miles between charges, and it took at least four hours to recharge battery. Steam engines had to stop and have their boilers refilled more frequently than their kerosene tanks. A type of fuel was needed to provide for a longer running engine that was still reliable. Enter the internal combustion engine. On May 8, 1879, a patent attorney from Rochester, New York, filed a patent for a hydrocarbon gas-powered road engine. George Selden's car rolled out of the shop in 1877, but it took a couple of years of tweaking before he applied for the patent. But with all the amendments he filed, the patent was not issued until 1895. Four years later, he sold his patent to the Electric Vehicle Company, who in 1903 sued Henry Ford for patent infringement when the Model T became successful. Selden won the validity of his patent, but lost the case because the courts decided Ford's design was significantly different from his. All that said, Carl Benz is credited with developing the first vehicle specifically designed to work with a gasoline-powered engine. It used a one-cylinder, two-stroke engine. According to the Daimler Company website, it ran for the first time on New Year's Eve, 1879. The car was little more than a wooden bench and a platform holding the engine behind the seat. The engine and bench set on a framework supported by three wheels, two in the back and one in the front for steering, basically a large motorized tricycle. However, Benz's vehicle included an electrical ignition, a differential, mechanical valves, a carburetor, oil and grease cups for lubrication, and a braking system, making it more like a modern car than Selden's.
The first company to build cars on an assembly line was the Oldsmobile Company, named after its founder, Ransom E. Olds. The company went into business in 1897, but it was not until 1902 that it instituted the assembly line for its Model R curved dash vehicle. Henry Ford, who is generally credited with building the first assembly line, actually invented the first moving assembly line. That said, neither Olds nor Ford invented the assembly line. That is credited to Philip Armour, who developed the system for his Chicago pork processing operations back in 1875. The growth of the automobile demanded smoother roads. In the late 1920s, folks in Osceola, Arkansas hosted a countywide barbecue, complete with prayers, speechifying, and fireworks to celebrate the completion of a paving project on the stretch of the Mississippi to St. Louis Road that ran through their county. The road was paved with gravel, probably using something like the macadam system that was developed in the early 1800s. By 1921, only about 300,000 of the 2.5 million miles of existing roadways in the United States were paved. If that sounds like a lot, it is only about one and a quarter percent of the roads. In order to ensure the prompt delivery of mail, Congress directed that a network of roads be created that linked the country together. In 1925, this network was officially titled the National Highway System. They also developed a federal matching fund program to assist states in road improvements for this network. Signs with a white background and black lettering that look like a shield are part of this program. The most famous road from this effort is Route 66. Although it never connected east and west coast together, it became one of the most traveled of the federal highways. In 1918, the increasing popularity of the automobile prompted Congress to authorize a study to consider the construction of an interstate highway system consisting of six highways, three running north-south and three running east-west. The study resulted in the Federal Highway Aid Act of 1944, which established a network of roads as part of a national defense program. But the act was underfunded, so the project languished until 1956, when the Eisenhower administration pushed through an act that declared such a system to be in the national interest. Eisenhower long supported such a system. In 1919, he had been part of a military convoy that took 62 days to cross from sea to shining sea. His sight of the Nazi-constructed autobahns convinced him that wide, limited-access roads were the way to go, so he pushed their designs for the new network, resulting in the birth of the modern interstate highway system. The combination of U.S. highway and interstate road systems provided the infrastructure needed to drive the nation's industrial growth clear into the 21st century. But really, for the economy to take off, we needed to take to the sky. The Wright brothers began to seriously experiment with heavier-than-air vehicles in 1899, just five years before their first successful flight in 1903, but they had spent the decade before that experimenting with gliders and following current research in the field. Some, both in the United States and across the Atlantic, believed other inventors like Alberto Santos Dumont, Gustav Whitehead, or Samuel Langley had beaten the Wright brothers in the race to be the first to lift off the ground in a reliable, heavier-than-air craft. But a photograph of the 1903 flight that John T. Daniels had taken silenced them. A series of silent film shorts from 1908 and a flight around the Statue of Liberty in 1912 gave the brothers the popular vote. The first commercial air travel came soon after the Wright brothers' film career. On November 16, 1909, a German company began moving people and goods around the world using blimps the Zeppelin Corporation manufactured. They were financially successful until May 6, 1937. 
That was when one of their airships, the Hindenburg, exploded at Lakehurst Naval Air Station in New Jersey, killing the 96 passengers and crew on board and one person on the ground. But by that time, commercial heavier-than-air travel was well on its way to eclipsing the lighter-than-air side of the industry. The first fixed-wing scheduled airline service started on January 1, 1914. The St. Petersburg and Tampa airboat line carried a former St. Petersburg mayor who sat on a wooden bench with a pilot in an open cockpit biplane. It traveled from St. Pete to Tampa and back. The round-trip ticket cost a measly $400 with no baggage fees. The second through 1,200th passenger paid $5 per flight. The company lasted four months before closing its doors. The first financially successful airline opened less than a month after the St. Petersburg and Tampa airboat line. Based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Chalks International Airlines started regular service to the Bahamas in February of 1919, creating the first international passenger air service. It operated continuously for the next 90 years. Some of the other early airlines that are still alive and kicking include the Netherlands KLM and Columbia's Avantia that began regularly scheduled flights in 1919. Australia's Qantas Airlines started in 1921, and Czech Airlines started in 1923. That said, the military was among the first to find practical applications for fixed-wing aircraft. In 1916, Pershing's punitive expedition into Mexico used a detachment of eight Curtis JN-3 airplanes to fly aerial reconnaissance missions. In 1917, after the United States entered World War I, the military established more than 30 air training facilities. The one at Ebert's Field near present-day Lone Oak, Arkansas, taught aerial photography. While Ebert's Field only lasted a couple of years, after the war, other training fields were adapted to other uses and are still around. Dallas Love Field, for example, was opened as a training facility about the same time as Ebert's Field. It was purchased by the city in 1927 to provide civilian access to the facility. Today, it claims to be the busiest medium-hub airport in the United States, with over 8 million passengers passing through it each year. The transfer of military training airfields to civilian use gave a significant boost to the fledgling commercial airline industry. The commercial flight industry received a really big boost from the post office. Short-hop test flights moving mail from town to town began on September 23, 1911, when Earl Ovington flew two or three miles on Long Island from Garden City to Mineola. During the flight, he periodically dropped mailbags from the plane for the Mineola postmaster to pick up. The post office started regularly scheduled airmail service in 1918 between New York and Washington, D.C., with a stop in Philadelphia. In 1920, it started to offer transcontinental service. The first two legs, New York to Cleveland, then Cleveland to Chicago, started in 1919, with segments from Chicago to Omaha and Omaha to San Francisco opening in September of 1920. Feeder lines, like those from Chicago to St. Louis and Chicago to Minneapolis, expanded available service to other parts of the country. During the early 1920s, the post office developed infrastructure vital to the development of the airline industry as well as airmail services. These included lighted instrument panels and paved runways. It also placed revolving beacon lights at selected airports and along the flight path to direct pilots. These improvements permitted regular round-the-clock flights. It also installed radio stations at each airfield to communicate area weather information to pilots. Soon, this network was made available to other government agencies. The Department of Agriculture was one of the first to use it. They transmitted weather forecasts and stock market reports over the post office's radio network. In 1926, the post office began contracting out email service to private companies. 
While airmail contracts were not particularly profitable, they provided a stable income to fledgling airlines that permitted them to expand their operations. Airline companies that would later become Delta, Braniff, American, and United all got their start hauling the U.S. mail in the 1920s and 30s. Once it had built a stable airmail infrastructure, the post office transferred it to other agencies to manage and maintain. The Department of Commerce took over its beacons, radio equipment, and some airfields. Ownership of all but a few of the remaining fields were given to local municipalities. The planes themselves were either sold to the contractors or were transferred to other government agencies. This transition made these facilities available to private businesses, further encouraging the growth of air-based industries. The development of an airplane specifically designed for the traveler was another significant event of the 1920s. Known as the Tin Goose, to differentiate it from the Tin Lizzie, the Ford Trimotor was one of the first all-metal, single-winged aircraft. It was constructed with three engines, one at the front end of the fuselage and one under each wing. It was an improved version of a plane that William Stout had designed a year or two earlier. The Ford Motor Company bought Stout's engineering firm as its entry point into the airline industry. The Trimotor's three-engine configuration permitted it to fly higher and faster than other planes on the market at the time. It also increased the airplane's reliability because it could land safely with only one working engine. Originally, Ford used it to haul car parts, along with the mail, from Dearborn to its assembly plant in Chicago. But the plane was really the first that was designed especially for passenger flight. Its enclosed cabin made it more comfortable for the dozen or so passengers it could carry. Ford built about 200 of the planes between 1925 and 1933, when the company dropped out of the commercial air industry. The Ford Trimotor's value declined when Boeing began production of its 247 in 1933, and Douglas Commercial its DC-2 in 1934, and its DC-3 a year later. Brainchild of American Airlines President Cyrus R. Smith, the DC-3 was specifically designed for overnight flight. It included 14 railroad-style sleeping berths. Yet throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and even into the 1950s, air travel took a backseat to the more comfortable, reliable, and better-known railroad. The end of World War II brought the airline industries their next boost. After the war, the United States sold many of its heavy bombers to airline companies who refitted them for commercial uses. Also, manufacturers like Boeing and Douglas used the framework they had engineered for their large bombers and redesigned their interiors for the air traveler. Finally, just as they did after World War I, decommissioned military training facilities became important resources for nearby towns. Tiny Walnut Ridge, Arkansas houses an airport with a 6,000-foot runway. It exists because of the legacy of the flight training school that opened there in August of 1942. In addition to its use as a cargo facility, the runway has brought an important 21st century boost to the town. In 1964, the Beatles were dropped off at the Walnut Ridge Airport so they could have a weekend off during their first American tour. Their chartered plane landed at Walnut Ridge because it was the closest airport to the ranch in southern Missouri they were going to stay at that could handle a four-engine aircraft. Their visit to Walnut Ridge was short. The band did not play in the town, they just deplaned and reboarded there. But in 2011, the town began to celebrate the band's only stop ever in Arkansas, with its first Beatles on the Ridge Festival. The event has since become a popular annual affair. Of course, airports continue to grow and improve as they seek to fill the demands of the airline industry. When it opened its doors in 1973, the Dallas-Fort Worth Regional Airport envisioned a future that included commercial space travel with a runway long enough to land the space shuttle. 
In the late 1940s, the airline industry began to shift from a traditional piston, also known as reciprocating internal combustion engine, to one that scientists often call a reaction internal combustion or jet engine. Reciprocating engines use pistons to convert pressure into a rotating motion that can turn a flywheel or a propeller. In contrast, reaction engines use a turbine to propel exhaust gases at a high velocity to produce thrust. Reaction engines, as a rule, can operate at lower air temperatures than piston engines. Therefore, an airplane using one can fly higher and faster than if it were to use a piston-based engine. The modern jet age was introduced to the commercial world in 1949 with the advent of the de Havilland Comet. The plane was short-lived. After three years of testing, its first commercial flight took place on May 2, 1952, in a run from London, England to Johannesburg, South Africa but the testing had failed to expose important design and construction flaws. The controls lacked feedback mechanisms that would allow the pilot to adjust the plane's trajectory when necessary. Also, there were stress cracks in its thin aluminum skin and leaks in the window seals and throughout the hydraulic system. These types of issues produced numerous accidents, the last of which caused the plane to disintegrate in mid-air over Stromboli, Italy on April 7, 1954, killing all on board along with the comet. The first commercial jet to provide regular sustained service was the Soviet Tupolev Tu-104. It began service in 1956. The first American jet service began on October 26, 1958, when Pan American Airlines used a Boeing 707 on its New York to Paris route. A decade later, Pan Am was also the first to use a wide-body jet aircraft when it rolled out the first Boeing 747 on January 21, 1970. The 1978 Airline Deregulation Act brought us the airline industry we know and love today. Because it permitted airlines to determine which airports they would serve, smaller, less profitable cities lost service. Because it allowed airlines to set their own fares, companies that dominated an airport could lower their costs until the companies with fewer landings and takeoffs were forced out, setting up an airport monopoly that permitted the airline to increase its fares. Thus, the act resulted in increased costs and reduced services to the airline traveler. These and other financial issues that came from deregulation resulted in a series of airline mergers and acquisitions that changed the way the industry worked. For example, successful airlines established hub airports that flew to and from smaller destination airports to reduce costs and increase efficiencies. Yet deregulation also opened doors to entrepreneurship within the industry. The 1990s saw the rise of discount airlines that limited their services to major cities and reduced customers' amenities. Such no-frills airlines forced legacy airlines to reduce their fares to compete, further encouraging airline company consolidation. Also, smaller airlines began to provide commercial service to smaller airports. Travelers could then connect to larger airlines for more direct flights. Just as steam powered the 19th century and oil the 20th, it will be interesting to see what will power the 21st and 22nd centuries. Fission, fusion, or even matter-antimatter reactors are all at the dream level. In any event, like all 21st century industries, both the automobile and airline industries continue to evolve. Who knows, in a few more decades, the DFW space shuttle-sized runway may still provide the travelers with low-cost, timely travel to the moon and beyond.